case you haven't picked up, our theme this morning is what makes the perfect Christmas for you? Now, how much work does it take to pull it all together? I think I've already said this is not how we normally do church. There is a lot more work that's gone into this morning than almost any other Sunday morning you might come and visit us on. But at Christmas, it feels worth it, doesn't it? Maybe the poem we read earlier resonated with you, though. Maybe that all that endless list of stuff to do, the things that need buying, the food that needs cooking, all of the stuff it just gets a bit stressy at times. This time of year, yes, is full of joy and celebration, but there can also be a lot of pressure to get it right, to do it properly, whatever that means. The food has to be just right. The decorations have to be beautiful or bright or classy and dignified or bold and amazing. The kids need to be happy with that perfect present that they've always wanted, or at least maybe for the last five minutes or so. <laughs> We've got to spend, spend, spend to make it a reality. We can pay it off next year, right? But whatever happens, you know, we can't let real life show through. You know, can we just take a break from our troubles for a day or two? We'll get back to them in the new year if we need to. We just want to feel the magic and Christmas spirit that the movies all talk about. Right? That's what we want. It can feel, though, like the perfect Christmas is so hard to attain. Which is weird, because we've already heard that that first Christmas was far from perfect. 2,000 years of history have allowed us to sanitise the story through Christmas cards. Who's got a Christmas card with a nice serene picture of a stable, even though there was no stable mentioned in the Bible, a star overhead, a calm mother who has gotten over birth remarkably quickly, it must be said, a peaceful baby sleeping surrounded by animals. I mean, that wouldn't have woken the baby, right? I don't know about you, but I can remember with our kids, we would tiptoe out of their room after settling them down again because the slightest creak would wake them up again. But a donkey going, yeah, no, that's going to be fine. That won't wake the baby. Both mother and father showing remarkable hospitality, opening their stable to shepherds and wise men so soon after their birth. I was that shell-shocked by our firstborn that I don't think I could have even thought about having anyone into my home, let alone this space that I've had to give birth into. Because there is plenty about the story of that first Christmas that is far from serene. Mary, a teenage girl who says yes to the angel, knowing full well that most people are going to disbelieve her story of a miraculous conception. They're going to put her to shame, saying, oh, yeah, really? Hmm, who was it really? Joseph, her betrothed, presented with the dilemma of his pregnant fiancée, swearing that she hasn't been unfaithful. Can he believe her? What will people say if he breaks the engagement? What will they say if he doesn't? There's a young married couple expecting a baby forced to travel 90 miles. Now, we don't think too much about travelling 90 miles. There's about an hour and a half in the car, maybe two hours. Back then, it was going to be on foot because the donkey is another thing that the Bible doesn't actually mention. You know, we've got all these songs, little donkey, little donkey on the dusty road. It wasn't in the Bible. They might well have been on foot for 90 miles 
Mary pregnant. All because Rome wants to take a census so they can work out how to get even more money out of these people. That's why they were going to Bethlehem. Mary gave birth away from home when every mother knows that the nesting instinct is real. You want to settle down, bed in, so that you are providing a safe space for your child. She's had to travel 90 miles and give birth in this strange space. There's no room in a family space. And there's only a manger that earlier in the day was probably used to feed, feed animals to lay your baby in. And then you play host to shepherds who come along raving about seeing angels in the fields, insisting that they want to see your baby boy. And then, cherry on the cake, you find out that no less than King Herod wants your baby dead. So you've got to uptail and flee to Egypt. See, the first Christmas was far from Christmas card perfect. It was messy, dramatic, gutsy, and full of trials and struggles. You know, in light of that, maybe struggling to cook the dark meat on the turkey while keeping the light meat moist isn't the worst Christmas you could have after all. But it's in the mess of that first Christmas that we see God himself getting stuck into our life on earth. Because we've heard the baby in the manger isn't an ordinary baby. The Bible, in the bits that we read this morning, calls him the saviour, the messiah, the new king, the lord, the son of God. The baby is God himself coming to sort out our mess. We didn't read it today, but remember that the wise men originally went to King Herod in the palace, expecting to find the new king that the star was foretelling there. And that's the natural place, right? A new king? Well, it's going to be in the palace. It's going to be in the majesty, the elegance, the opulence, the finery of Herod's palace. It would just be unseemly otherwise. But that isn't where God appears. Although he himself is perfect, he comes to the middle of our messy, imperfect world to meet us right where we are. He doesn't demand that we clean ourselves up to come up to his level, which we would have done if we'd found him in the palace. If we wanted to see the new king and he was born in the palace, we would have had to put on our best, we'd have had to wash ourselves, we'd have had to comb our hair, clearly I've not done that today. <laughs> I haven't had time for a haircut. I will before Christmas. Promise. <laughs> we would have had to do ourselves up. But he doesn't do that. He comes to us and lies in a smelly manger used by a donkey, a goat or a cow. So if the first Christmas wasn't so picture perfect, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we put ourselves through it? Why go to all this effort to get it just right, to make it magical and get in the Christmas spirit? Now, there are some of us who just love throwing a good party for those we love. I'm married to one. <laughs> and those people are wonderful. If you are a natural host who comes alive cooking a dinner to feed thousands, it feels like, that's amazing. And I'd like to know when I can come around for dinner, please. <laughs> Others are natural givers. You enjoy finding that special something that is going to make your loved one's face light up with delight when they unwrap it. You are wonderful people who know the truth of what Jesus taught when he was older, that it is more blessed to give than receive. 
But sometimes I think there are other reasons we put ourselves through it. For some, you know that life is far from perfect the rest of the year, but maybe if we can get this one day a year right, it won't be so bad. Maybe others feel judged and shamed for who they are and what they're going through. But if I can put on the perfect Christmas, well, that will show them. Or maybe you have a deep sense that you're not the best version of yourself that you could possibly be. Every new year, many of us make resolutions. I've given up because, frankly, I've got bored and fed up of getting to the 8th of January and thinking, well, there's another year. None of us are the best version of us that we could be. We all fall short of our own standards, let alone the standards of those around us or of God himself. We've all done wrong. The Bible calls that sin. It's a short little word, but it just means that we fall short. We're not perfect. And in this day and age, people who do think or say the wrong thing has to be said, don't find forgiveness very easily. There are people sharing things on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram who are losing their jobs because people who don't like it report them to their employer just for disagreeing with them. We all have this sense that we are not all we could be. But if I can make this Christmas as special as can be, I'll have proved to myself that I'm better than I thought. If you've been raised in a religious family, maybe you do it as a way of showing God that you mean business and are taking him seriously, even if it is just for one day a year. You know, the reality is, and I've probably missed things that are behind your motive for trying to make Christmas perfect. There is a whole mush of emotions and reasons, both good and bad, for why we put ourselves through it. But the messy truth of the first Christmas means that we really don't have to. The most important thing about the Christmas story is that it shows that God loves us and he wants to meet us where we are, that he wants us to know and love him and that he's prepared to do whatever he can to make that happen. See, if we look a little bit further on in Jesus's life, in the late, later bits of the gospel that we don't always get to, we see that he grew up and he did amazing things. He showed that he had power over illness, over disease, over the grave. He rose people from the dead. He showed that he had authority and power over nature itself. He was able to speak to a storm, calm, be still. And it was. He showed himself to have wisdom and authority and that he is worth following. And then 30 or so years after he was born, it all comes to a crashing stop. He dies the most painful death you can imagine. But even that, he did for you and for me. See, that sense we have of brokenness and imperfection reflects the truth that we've all done things that we need forgiveness for, both from other people and from God. And you know what? These things do need to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus did when he died. He never did anything wrong. He's different to us. But he died the death that we deserved. And the Bible tells us that everything we have done that is wrong, that falls short, was carried away by him as he was on that cross. We remember that at Easter, so I'm jumping the gun a little bit. But for me, Christmas does, isn't amazing without Easter as well. Because of Christmas, because Jesus rose again after he died, 
We can have forgiveness and friendship with God just by admitting our need and trusting that he's done enough to cover it all. Not by working really, really hard to pay it off like an overdue credit card or an electric bill. See, that messy and imperfect first Christmas shows us that God is not put off by our mess and imperfection. He loves you and he wants you to find him this Christmas. It may not be in the palace of a perfect Christmas. It may be in the mess and stress and strain of a Christmas that remains stubbornly imperfect despite our best efforts. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong at aiming for a perfect Christmas. Trust me, we're going to be doing that in our house. We will. We don't know how to do it any other way. But if you don't hit it, know that God still loves you. Know that he wants to be your friend that will meet you in your mess, just like he did 2,000 years ago. And if you do manage it, well done. But if you do manage it, I'd like to encourage you to maybe go a bit deeper and think about whether the perfect Christmas is enough after all. There is so much more on offer and God wants you to find it in Jesus. Whatever sort of Christmas you have this year, and we're only eight days away, I don't mean to scare anybody, but eight days, eight days. Whatever sort of Christmas you have this year, God promises to be available to any who call on him. Why not invite him into your Christmas this year? Amen.